This morning I want to look at a verse we looked at, I think about six or eight years ago, and I want to go back there with you because this is a favorite text of mine, and uh, sometimes when I sign my name to things, I'll add this text, or when I write a letter, I'll end it with a reference to this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. This is the last verse in one of the New Testament's longest chapters, and keep in mind, this comes at the tail end of Paul's long discourse on the doctrine of resurrection. Often on Easter Sunday, we'll, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15 because the entire chapter is about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ, the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Paul is defending all of these ideas. And so the whole chapter leading up to this final verse has been about resurrection. And then Paul writes in the final verse, therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's an important text, and and it marks a strategic point at the very climax of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. This This letter, you know, was written to a troubled church as a corrective. And throughout the epistle, Paul has been addressing a number of serious problems that had arisen in this church in his absence. This was the first ever charismatic church, you know, with all the problems of charismatic theology. And Paul, of course, was the founding pastor of the church. But after he had established the church and and in effect been their pastor for 18 months, Paul's ministry, he was a missionary, not a situated pastor. 18 months to spend in Corinth was an extraordinarily long time for Paul, but then his ministry took him away from Corinth, and these problems began to arise almost immediately. And so the church wrote to Paul for help, raising a a list of questions for him to answer. And so 1 Corinthians, it's an easy book to outline because It's a catalog of Paul's answers to the questions they sent him. We can discern what they were asking based on the answers Paul gives. And this verse, our verse, is the pinnacle of the entire epistle. Chapter 16, the last chapter in 1 Corinthians, is dominated by assorted loose ends and personal greetings. It's just the formal closing of the epistle. But this verse, our verse, marks the end of the didactic portion of 1 Corinthians. And it is a short, one-sentence summary of the practical lesson of the whole epistle. He's summing up here. Now, this is a unique epistle because, as I said, this is Paul's answer to a series of questions this church had sent to him. And in the process of answering these questions... He, he deals with this laundry list of significant problems that were severely hindering the growth and uh, fruitfulness of the Corinthian fellowship. And most of you will remember what we talk about this all the time because it seems like we go to 1 Corinthians a lot. It's one of my favorite epistles. But this was a problematic church, and we've talked about it so many times. They had factions so that everyone in the church had kind of lined up behind their favorite teacher or they'd identified with their favorite Christian leader or they'd formed these little groups based on intramural rivalries against one another. It not, it, they weren't friendly groups like the fellowship groups here at Grace, right? We're never, we're never competitive against the others, are we? But this was, this was bad stuff that they were doing. Everyone in the church had, had these, these gangs, kind of, theological gangs that they hung with. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. This was the really sanctified group. <laughs> and then Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's interesting to me, too, that he kind of goes after the Paul group there. But they were also, this church, also tolerating significant sin in their midst. We talked about this just a few weeks ago when we looked at 1 Corinthians 6. They had, for example, you know, this man who was having an incestuous affair, chapter 5, verse 1. He was somehow involved in an immoral relationship with 
Paul says his father's wife, and Paul doesn't give the details, so we don't know if this was actually the man's mother or his stepmother, but either way, this was a very unsavory relationship, even in the eyes of unsaved people. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says it was sexual immorality of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So the Corinthians had evidently adapted a kind of postmodern view of what it means to be loving and tolerant, and because rather than dealing with this man's sin, they regarded it as a badge of honor, that they were sophisticated and seeker-sensitive enough to embrace this guy in their fellowship and, and make that church, you know, a safe place where he could live out his faith journey in spite of his failings. But in chapter 5, Paul rebukes them for that attitude, and he orders them to discipline this man who was in sin. In other words, excommunicate him, put him out of the church. Another issue, major issue in this church was that they were bringing lawsuits against one another. That's what we talked about when we were looking at chapter 6. And according to chapter 7, they were also confused about the issues of marriage and celibacy and sexual purity and singleness and the role of widows in the church, all of these having to do with a a tangled idea of what marriage is and what it's supposed to be. This is very much like a modern church. They were having disputes over Christian liberty and specifically whether it's lawful to eat food that's been offered to idols, which was a huge thing in Corinth because there were idol temples everywhere. You could buy discount food if you bought it from the priests who took the food people offered as offerings and sold it at a discount price. And so Paul deals with the question of whether that's a sin to do that or maybe wise stewardship. How do you look at that? He answers that question. They had women who were trying to usurp the role of men in the leadership of the church. He deals with that in chapter 11. We also learn in chapter 11 that they had people who were disrupting their observance of the Lord's table by turning it into an occasion for drunkenness and, and gluttony, and they were losing the sacred significance of their communion service. They had people abusing their spiritual gifts and turning the church services into contests to see who could produce the most spectacular display of tongues and prophecy. He deals with that in chapters 12 through 14. So, in other words, this is a church with a lot of problems. And and notice that virtually all of these problems had to do with selfish, greedy, egocentric, childish, self-centered attitudes. These were people who were you know, in it for themselves. You might say it this way. The besetting sin of the Corinthian church was that people were refusing to esteem one another as better than self, so that everything in Corinth was being done through strife and vainglory. And furthermore, notice that most of their problems were problems of polity and practice. These were, in other words, problems that were related to disorganization in the church and personal sin in the lives of people who were trying to, you know, step into prominence now that the Apostle Paul had moved on to another place and he's no longer there to lead them. So you had people who weren't qualified as spiritual leaders trying to take over leadership in the church, which is to say all of these were pretty typical church problems, but they were serious problems any one of them could destroy the Corinthian fellowship if, if they weren't corrected. And it's unusual, I think, to see all of these problems focused in one church. Now, think about it. You might be surprised to see those very problems that plague churches today so widespread in the early church, especially this is a church that, that had Paul as their founder, and he had nurtured and personally led them and taught them for a year and a half before his ministry moved him to another mission field, you might think that any church with a rich heritage like that, good teaching, wise leadership under the influence of someone like the Apostle Paul, you might think they would be immune from the same kind of petty problems that trouble the average church in America's Bible Belt today, but that isn't the case. This church is a 
like all churches today, the church itself is a, a fellowship of redeemed sinners. And we are people who sometimes bring our sinful habits and carnal tendencies with us into the kingdom of Christ. And, and that is why the church as a whole, and frankly, every local fellowship as well, needs to be constantly reforming. Churches, just like those of us who make up the membership, we constantly need to be more sanctified. And sanctification is a process that we cannot afford to let it stall. And Paul seems to have saved the most serious problem in Corinth to the very last. Because notice the logical progression here of what he deals with. He first deals with the internal divisions, then he goes to the immorality and the lawsuits and the marital issues and the question of the role of women and their abuse of the charismatic gifts, pretty much in that order is how he deals with them. And when you rehearse it like that, it really does sound like a, a catalog of the sins of the 21st century church, doesn't it? So this is nothing if not relevant. But then at the end of chapter 14, he sums up his answer to all of those problems with a single, simple, straightforward principle, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, all things should be done decently and in order. They just did that. It would solve most of the problems in the Corinthian church. Just do everything decently and in order. Now, the New Testament doesn't give detailed answers to a lot of our practical questions about church polity and structure. But if we simply tape what Scripture does teach and apply that basic principle consistently and conscientiously and carefully, that would solve, actually, the majority of church problems related to leadership and church politics. This is a perfect one-sentence answer to 90% of the problems that were plaguing the Corinthian church, all things should be done decently and in order. But that church also had a significant doctrinal problem too. And so Paul deals with it in this classic chapter, the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. He's defending the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Apparently, Someone in Corinth was spreading a belief among church members that, that the idea of resurrection from the dead was not necessarily to be taken literally as a truth to be embraced and taught as true, that bodies will rise from the dead. Because since that idea, the idea of bodily resurrection, was so foreign to Greek culture, and we know from the New Testament that it was, you, you see that in... in uh, Paul's message in Acts 17, just before he came to Corinth for the first time, he's preaching on Mars Hill, and the minute he mentions the resurrection of the dead, that ends the gathering. That's what they wanted to talk about. That's what struck them as so unusual. So this was an idea that was difficult to reconcile with Greek philosophy and Greek religion and Greek beliefs. And so there were apparently people who decided that this is a doctrine that Christians talk about that maybe we shouldn't talk about as much, or maybe not take it too seriously, or that maybe it doesn't need to be interpreted literally, that it's not to be insisted upon strictly as one of the core articles of Christian belief. You see that happening in the church today with doctrines that are unpopular in, in postmodern times, the idea that men should lead the church rather than women maybe we shouldn't take that so literally, people today like to say. That's what they were doing with the idea of the resurrection from the dead. And so someone either in the church itself, or more likely someone from the outside who came to Corinth and insinuated himself into some position of influence in the church by pretending to have some kind of teaching authority, a cultist, basically. Someone is telling these Christians that belief in the literal resurrection of the human body is not an essential element of the Christian message. And some of the Corinthians had bought that idea because it frankly made things more comfortable in that Greek culture, not to be talking about the resurrection of dead bodies. And so they were spreading this idea among the flock, saying that you could be a Christian and you don't have to believe in a literal physical resurrection of the bodies of dead people. Maybe they were saying that what counted 
is that you believe in some kind of spiritual afterlife or, or whatever, you know, that you, you become a, an ethereal spirit out there in the Elysium. That's what the pagans taught. If Christians could believe that and that's sufficient, made life much more comfortable for them. So it's clear here that serious doubts had been sown in this church about whether the physical bodies of dead believers really would one day be resurrected. Verse 12, Paul says, some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. People in the church were beginning to say this. Now, we know from Scripture that the idea of bodily resurrection was an extremely controversial belief, according to Greek intellectual culture. It was deemed unsophisticated and unscientific, the same as it is today, really, uh, to believe that the bodies of the dead will one day be restored to life, even after they've decayed, even after they've, they've been lost or eaten by fishes or whatever. This idea was dismissed out of hand as ignorant and superstitious, just as it would be in any typical science class in any modern university. And that's why in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to the elite minds of Athens at the Areopagus, notice he attacked practically every fundamental distinctive of Greek religious belief. He said that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He proclaimed that God demands all men everywhere to repent. He announced the coming day of judgment. He said that there is basically one God who created everything. And they didn't believe any of that, but What set off the commotion that ended his sermon that day was when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. So all of Greek culture and education considered this a grotesque and utterly absurd idea. They had the idea that everything that is corrupt and evil about the present world is embodied in our physical existence. They couldn't wait to be rid of their bodies because they thought that's what was needed to actually thrust them into paradise couldn't be paradise if you had a physical body. That's how they thought. And so they regarded the material world as the seat of everything that is evil, and they considered the body unredeemable. To them, paradise could only be obtained by breaking free of this material world and and breaking free of our physical bodies. That's the same kind of thinking, by the way, that lies at the root of Buddhism, Hinduism, Neo-Gnosticism, New Age belief, and most other religions even today. And the Corinthians, who were steeped in that Greek culture, obviously, they were confused by the belief system that dominated secular society. And they were perhaps embarrassed to proclaim a belief that the rest of society found grotesque and unsophisticated. So they were asking, just how important is the resurrection? And notice... Paul answers that question emphatically by dealing with the resurrection of the dead as one of the primary and utterly essential truths of the gospel. He says, without this idea, you don't have the gospel. And in fact, based on what Paul says in this chapter, he believed that no single truth was more vital to authentic Christianity than the idea of bodily resurrection, starting with Christ's own resurrection. When I say that, I'm not saying he believed it was more important than the deity of Christ or, or the authority of Scripture, but he put it up there with those doctrines that are essential to the gospel. And so he spends an entire chapter defending this idea of bodily resurrection and expounding on it. And he starts by naming 500-plus eyewitnesses to the physical resurrection of Christ. He points out that the whole doctrine of atonement presupposes that the resurrection of Christ was real, that he rose to heaven in the same body in which he died. The body was glorified and changed in a way that made it eternal and incorruptible, of course, but it was the same actual physical body that had been placed in the tomb. This was not, in other words, an apparition or a vision or merely a spiritual thing. This was a physical body and the very same body only transformed into something more glorious and greater than before. And Paul then goes on to say, if that is not the case, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's how important it is. And he spends the remainder of the chapter answering 
the objections that scoffers had raised, pointing out in the words of verse 53 that this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. But he insists that this body, the same body that's sown in dishonor, the same body is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, verse 43. So he leaves no wiggle room for anyone to spiritualize this idea or to allegorize it away, to change the plain meaning of the text to something symbolic. He insists that the resurrection of the dead will be a real, physical, glorious resurrection of our mortal bodies, which he says then will be clothed with immortality. And he insists, likewise, that the resurrection of Christ was a real, historical, verifiable resurrection of the very same body that was crucified. Anything less than that, he says, isn't Christianity at all. And to those who want to save their intellectual stature or their academic respectability by putting some kind of clever spin on the resurrection in order to explain away the true, miraculous, literal nature of the miracle that occurred when Christ rose from the dead, to those people, Paul, in effect, says, if you do not believe that this literally happened, and that it was physically verified by those of us who saw with our own eyes and handled with our own hands. If you don't believe that, he says, then you're not a believer at all. You're not really a Christian. And let me say this. If you truly believe in the resurrection of the dead, the physical resurrection, there is no reason to question any other miracle, especially on on supposedly scientific grounds. So if this chapter puts so much stress on the literal reality of the bodily resurrection, which is the pinnacle of all miracles, then there's no reason to give any latitude whatsoever to people who try to explain away the lesser miracles of Scripture, whether they spiritualize the meaning of the Bible or or treat this or that chapter as some kind of special literary genre so we can make it mean something other than what it says. And that goes especially for the Genesis account of six-day creation. I have no sympathy whatsoever for those who think that it's unsophisticated or naive to take the biblical account of of creation at, at face value. The, the spirit of that kind of skepticism is really no different from the Greek skepticism about the doctrine of bodily resurrection. It's the same thing. You either believe the Bible or you don't. And you can't pick and choose the bits of it that you want to believe. Anyway, that's the context of 1 Corinthians 15. He spends this entire chapter defending the truth of bodily resurrection, saying it's a literal reality, it's a historical fact, It's an essential tenet of the Christian faith, and it is the singular foundation on which all of our hopes are grounded. And he argues for this doctrine by citing eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Christ, by pointing to the biblical prophecies that foretold the resurrection of Christ, by highlighting the New Testament principles that hinge on the truth of a real bodily resurrection. And so he systematically and conclusively proves that the physical bodily resurrection is an absolute necessity for true Christianity, And he says that if the resurrection is not true, and if it's not sure and certain, then nothing is true and sure and certain. But it is true, he says. And he declares it with the absolute confidence of someone who was himself an eyewitness. And if we share Paul's confidence, that conviction needs to have a practical impact on the way we live our lives. Now, I've pointed this out many times in the past, but I don't want you to miss it here. Paul had a pattern that he consistently followed in his teaching, and you see it here. Paul's preferred style of teaching was to expound a doctrine fully first, and then he would make some practical application of that doctrine. In Romans, for example, you have 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters of the epistle to the Romans are all about doctrine, and he focuses specifically on the doctrine of justification. And he fully expounds that doctrine for 11 chapters, and then he spends the final chapters of Romans making practical applications 
of the doctrine that he established in those first 11 chapters. He does the same thing in Ephesians. You've got three chapters in the book of Ephesians, three chapters of in-depth doctrine about election and the call of God. And, and then the final three chapters give practical instructions for how to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Galatians, you've got four and a half chapters of do- uh, doctrine, followed by just a chapter and a half of practical exhortation. And pretty much always, the practical section of Paul's writing is introduced with the word, therefore. And notice, sometimes Paul gives nearly equal amounts of doctrinal instruction and practical help, as he does in Ephesians, where the therefore comes right at the halfway point of that epistle, therefore, and then he goes into practical stuff. But normally, if you line up everything Paul ever wrote, normally his teaching is weighted heavily towards the doctrinal side. He focused on doctrine, and then he always made application, but not always in equal amounts. And sometimes the doctrine would would vastly outweigh the practical section. But the doctrine always comes first, and as I said, usually the, the doctrinal section is weightier and more detailed than the practical section, which think about it, that's exactly backward from the style of preaching that's most popular today, isn't it? Where people want all application, all practical advice, and, you know, go easy on the doctrine, because my head just can't handle all of that. Paul didn't have any patience with that, that idea. Neither do I, but you know me well enough to know that. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, in this chapter, you have this same pattern in a kind of microcosm. The chapter itself is a treatise on doctrine, and all the stress is on this one vital doctrine about bodily resurrection, and Paul deals with the doctrine carefully and thoroughly across 57 verses. And he anticipates and answers his opponent's arguments. He sets forth an impressive array of proofs and and points of doctrinal orthodoxy. And so 57 verses that constitute one long doctrinal discourse on a single point of doctrine, the doctrine of bodily resurrection. And it's not until the very end of this chapter, the 58th verse, the last verse of the chapter, that he finally gets to the therefore. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the sum of all of his practical application here. One verse, and it's a simple principle. It's a sweeping commandment, but it's not really the least bit complex or difficult to apprehend. Here is what the promise of bodily resurrection means to the Apostle Paul in practical terms. He says it's a reason to remain steady, and it's a reason to stay busy, and it's a reason to be confident as we head into an unconfident, uncertain future. And this morning I want to think through verse 58 with you. We're just going to look at this one verse to analyze what Paul is saying under those three headings. His rationale here is for placing so much stress on the doctrine of resurrection, especially in a pagan culture like Corinth. Here's why he stresses it so much, because it's a reason to remain steady, it's a reason to remain busy, and it's a reason to remain confident. So let that be our outline, and we'll start with argument number one. It's a reason to remain steady. And this is the very first phrase of the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Stay steady, he says. Be steadfast, immovable. And he uses two very strong verbs that are near synonyms. The word that's translated steadfast comes from a a root that speaks of being seated. And one commentator suggests this is so strong as to contain the connotation of being sedentary. But, of course, Paul is not advocating any kind of inactivity or inertia, and you're going to see that in a minute. He's not saying, sit down and take it easy. He means, be firm and secure in the faith. 
Be calm and unbending in the face of opposition. Don't move from position to position depending on what popular thinking says at whatever moment, but plant yourself firmly on these foundational truths of the gospel, the pillars of the true faith that will never change. Plant yourself there and make that the place where you take your stand. Steadfastness. It's not a popular virtue in these postmodern times. I had a good friend a few years back who was a gifted teacher and a fairly influential teacher. Some of you would recognize his name if I said it. He would speak at conferences with lots of the same places where I'm sometimes asked to minister. We had tons of friends in common. And in those days, I thought that we saw eye to eye on pretty much everything that's important. I had learned from him, and, and I generally looked up to him. But my one concern about what him was that he seemed to have a tendency to change his mind suddenly about important things. Even after he had already studied and taught and published material on this, on, on whatever issue he's changing his mind on, and as a result, he would take up new issues all the time. And every other year or so, he tended to make a new hobby horse out of whatever had caught his interest at the moment. And I always thought that he fell short of explaining why he changed his mind about things so often and so quickly. It wasn't always important things, but it became a pattern where he began to change his mind on the very important things. He had started the Christian life as a kind of mainstream, midstream evangelical. And then he discovered the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God. And so he became a hardline Calvinist for a couple of years. And in fact, I think he was flirting with hyper-Calvinism for a while. And then he had an epiphany about the dangers of that, and he made a change that was a good change. He became interested in the history of revival, and for a while, that's what he spoke about wherever he went. And so at first, these radical changes of mind were mostly good, and he's moving from one point of view to another in a way that seemed harmless at first, but he was establishing this pattern of making regular radical changes in his focus and his belief system every few years. And then he started to flip-flop on the major important issues, not always for the better. And at first he was ardently opposed to the kind of ecumenism that was seeking to unite Protestants and Catholics. You remember Evangelicals and Catholics together, that document. He was one of the first voices to speak against it. But then he suddenly became a cheerleader for all of the ecumenical trends. Totally did a 180 on that issue. Changed his views on justification by faith, the, the really the heart of the gospel, in order to embrace a view that was more compatible with his newfound desire to find common ground with Roman Catholicism. Then he began to take an interest in postmodernism and the emerging church movement. And now he, he's pretty much fallen from any, any public view. He doesn't teach much anymore. He's become, however, an outspoken critic of practically every conviction that he and I used to share in common. And the turning point was an article that he wrote 20 years ago, uh, an article which he published in which he said he had come to the point of view that the very essence of true humility is a willingness, he said, to change your mind. And he also, he had come to see certitude, settled certainty on anything. He'd come to see that as a fleshly, egotistical, arrogant thing, not even something to be desired. Doubt was preferable to certainty, he said, because nothing in his belief system had ever really been settled with any kind of certainty, apparently. Now he says he's fed up with wanting to be right and tired of trying to be certain about what he believes, and so he's simply given up the quest for being sure about anything. And that explains why this guy had always undergone these shifts, major paradigm shifts in his theological perspective every other year or so. He never saw steadfastness as a valid goal, something to pursue, a virtue to be cultivated. Instead, he believed true humility required him to reject and condemn his own belief system every few months. And that is exactly what he did. And in his mind, people who don't regularly rethink and renounce some of their deepest convictions are simply headstrong and arrogant. That's a surprisingly common opinion 
in these postmodern times. It really is a postmodern notion that we can't be sure about anything, so we, we shouldn't act like we are sure about anything. We've all been conditioned to think of certainty as presumptuous and egotistical. You think you actually know the truth? Yeah, I think God has revealed some truths to us, and I believe them. But that's supposed to be arrogant. We're not supposed to be immovable in our convictions. That's what our culture is telling us. And in fact, people nowadays don't want to hear about how sure you are of this or that doctrine. They want to hear about your doubts. They want to hear some transparent admission of the doubts you have. So they'll recoil when you state anything with conviction, but they love it when someone throws out old orthodoxies in favor of, you know, new and trendy ideas. And the more you criticize the old orthodoxies, the easier it is to gain an appreciative audience these days. Defend the old orthodoxy and you're the one who's going to be called arrogant. But preaching is supposed to be done with conviction and firmness. Paul told Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's how Titus was supposed to preach. You know, a sermon is not a vehicle for thinking out loud. We need to be certain of any doctrine before we teach it or affirm it in print. And anyone who continually does these kinds of paradigm shifts, the flip-flops on basic details of gospel truth, anyone who does that is not truly humble. He's weak in the faith, and he's not fit to be a preacher. Our convictions are supposed to be firm and fixed, and that's what this verse is calling for. They're simply no virtue in trying so hard to over-nuance every doctrine or to pretend that we're uncertain of things that we're supposed to be sure of, things about which Scripture speaks plainly, but act like, well, maybe it's not that simple, just in order to fit better with the academic approach that happens to be popular at the moment. That's happening all around us. I once wrote something like that back when I was blogging, put it on my blog, and a young seminary graduate wrote me back to say he thought I should rethink my position on that. (laughs) He said he believes that settled convictions are grossly overrated, that doubt is good because it makes us think about things more deeply, and that changing one's mind regularly is a practical way to cultivate humility, he said. Because he said confidence, all confidence, is overconfidence, because we're fallen creatures. And he cited Psalm 10, verse 6, where the wicked atheist says in his heart, I shall not be moved. And his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud, and under his tongue is mischief and vanity. That's talking about the atheist who's fixed in his position. And it is obviously true, and we all need to admit that arrogance is a sinful tendency of all fallen flesh, including ours. It would be arrogant to pretend that Our hearts are free from any kind of arrogance. But it is not arrogant to believe that God's word is true. It's not arrogant to refuse to budge in your convictions every time someone thinks he has come up with a new reason to doubt. Scripture commands us to be steadfast and immovable in our convictions. And besides, who's more arrogant? Is it the guy who refuses to compromise even when the whole world shifts their opinion against him? Or is it the guy who who never settles on any truth, and yet he constantly wants to argue about everything anyway? Isn't it the very height of arrogance for someone so racked with doubts to be that argumentative? The chronic doubter invariably wants to argue about practically everything, and by his own admission, it's not because he himself has has embraced something that he's now certain about. It's just because he can't stand for anyone else to have strong convictions while he's reveling in his own uncertainty and doubt. When When did constant waffling on life's most important questions ever get to be an expression of humility? It's not. And when God has spoken to us as plainly as he does in his word, that kind of chronic skepticism is not humility at all. That is the very height of carnal arrogance. Don't be like that, Paul says. Be steadfast, immovable, for you know, he says. By the way, I I said these two words, steadfast and immovable, are near synonyms. He's repeating the idea 
in order to make his point as emphatic as possible. Steadfast, as I said, evokes the idea of someone who's seated, fixed comfortably in place, settled and stalwart. It speaks of the strength of the person's convictions. Or to paraphrase Paul, here is a truth you can count on implicitly. It's as sure and and as certain as the historical fact of Christ's own resurrection. Here's the truth, that you too will rise from the dead in a glorified, imperishable bodily form. And of all of the verities and certainties and essential doctrines of the Christian faith, this one ranks up there with the top. Count on it, he's saying. Live your life accordingly. Settle into that conviction and don't let anyone persuade you differently. Be steadfast. So that's a positive and powerful term. And the other word is a stronger expression even than that, and it's stated as a negative. Be immovable. So steadfast means fixed and stationary and permanent, and immovable means resistant to change, defiant against those who would try to move you. So this is a very powerful combination of words, and it echoes Colossians 1.23, where Paul instructs the believers in the church at Colossae to continue in the faith, he says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, I can't stress this enough. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. It applies to rank-and-file believers, not only to those who teach and actively defend the faith, this means that the false humility and the, and the glorified uncertainty that our postmodern world suggests is the highest of virtues, it's actually no virtue at all. That's a grievous sin, to be uncertain about everything. We are supposed to be sure in what we believe, and we're supposed to be fixed and immovable despite the fact that our culture has glorified uncertainty, and we stand in bold opposition to those who insist that chronic doubting, chronic questioning of what you believe is the only true humility. It's not. That doesn't mean you have to be absolutely fixed on every, you know, minor thing you believe, but it does mean that on the core truths of the gospel, you need to refuse to budge. And the resurrection epitomizes all the reasons for that kind of unshakable certainty, confidence in the truth, because it is true and it's verifiable in every conceivable sense. Because it's true, we can believe the whole gospel with absolute confidence. Because there are eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitness testimony about the resurrection of Christ and the certainty of God's promises in his word, the prophecies that foretold all of this, put it all together, and there is no truth more certain than this. And because we believe the gospel, we know with a fixed certainty that we ourselves will be participants in the resurrection that lies at the heart of the gospel promise. John 6, 47, whoever believes has eternal life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And as he expands on that promise, Jesus makes it clear that the promise guarantees the the certainty of our bodily resurrection. In the very next verse, John 5, 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then a few verses later, verses 28 and 29, he makes it even more explicit. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, there is no more important truth than that. There are some that equal it, but there's none that's more important. And nothing in this world is more vital to be settled and certain about than the question of whether you will be resurrected to life in an eternally glorified body or merely raised from the grave in order to face judgment for your sins. One or the other will happen. And either way, the principle of resurrection is an absolute certainty. Jesus said so, and he proved it by rising from the dead. And Paul has spent an entire chapter giving proofs and answers for the skeptics, and now he says in the simplest but most important practical application he's ever given, he says, 
be steadfast and immovable. Make certain where you stand. Fix your heart on faith in Christ and the promise of resurrection and refuse to budge from that certainty. Doubts and fears may assault you. The world will attack your faith and try to undermine your confidence. But, Paul says, be steadfast and immovable. You can count on the promise of resurrection and the living, breathing, tangible proof of that is Christ's own resurrection from the dead. There is no better reason to remain steady. Now, I said earlier that being steadfast and immovable does not mean being sedentary and inactive. And Paul says the same thing. He says also the doctrine of bodily resurrection is a reason to remain busy. And this is his second argument. It's a reason to remain busy. Look at the verse again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So he's saying, stay busy. And the resurrection is a great motive for staying busy because the glories and rewards of eternity are given in greater measure to faithful workmen. Or maybe a better way of saying it is this, staying busy in the work of the Lord, rendering faithful obedience to his commandments and his calling in this life, that is one of the best ways of laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. The promise of bodily resurrection guarantees that our earthly life and our temporal labors have eternal ramifications. And in his vision of heaven in Revelation 14, 13, the apostle John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them. What you do in this life has eternal value and eternal significance. The Epicureans, you know, were a cult of Greek philosophers who denied the possibility of an afterlife, the Epicureans, and therefore they believed it was important to enjoy as much pleasure and avoid as much work as possible in this life. And in our contemporary culture pretty much operates on the same set of presuppositions. Most of you are or lots of you are old enough to remember those beer commercials that said you, you only go around once, grab all the gusto you can. <laughs> Which makes pretty good sense if there's no resurrection coming. Try to imagine the first century Christian and what, what he looked like to a person who was steeped in Greek culture, especially the Epicureans. Christians were being persecuted and killed for their faith, and yet they persisted in proclaiming their message. They were known for their willingness to sacrifice and serve one another. They remained joyful in the midst of horrific trials, and the church kept growing. You cannot explain that except for the fact of the resurrection. You know, someone like Stephen, martyred for his faith at the height of his ministry. How does that not seem hopeless from the Epicurean point of view? But from a Christian point of view, in light of the hope of our resurrection, there is every reason not only to remain active in the work of the Lord, but to abound in it. And not merely to abound in it, but to abound always. Paul is deliberate in his choice of words, and here he compounds these modifiers for the sake of emphasis, abound in the work of the Lord, he says. And the clear implication is your labor will receive a full reward. And in fact, Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God will reward the works of his people. And the full richness of that reward won't even be seen until the resurrection. There's just no better reason to stay busy always and abundantly. As the final phrase of the verse says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that brings us to Paul's third practical argument rooted in the hope of resurrection. First, it's a reason to remain steady. Second, it's a reason to remain busy. Now, third, it's a reason to remain confident. What better reason for hope? You know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. No matter how fruitless or frustrated your, your earthly labors may seem to carnal eyes, if you are faithful, you will reap an eternal reward. And the clear implication is that 
the reward will be exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. None of our labor will be lost. None of it is unprofitable. And therefore, we have the highest reason for the utmost confidence. You know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the the proper and necessary perspective for every laborer in the Lord's vineyard. Our labor may not always be fully rewarded in this life. And frankly, that's a blessing because whatever reward you receive in this life is only temporary. That's what Jesus stressed with the Pharisees. He said they did their alms to be seen and and praised by other men. And Jesus said, if that's what they want, that's the reward they will receive. But that's the only reward they will receive. So if you are motivated only by visible success and instant rewards, material things, you are going to be a vacillating and discouraged Christian. But if you don't care about earthly rewards, and if you don't judge your success or your fruitfulness by this world's standards, you can be certain you will receive an eternal reward that's even greater yet. The resurrection is the proof and the down payment on that reward. And so if heaven is where you set your affections, if that's where your focus lies, if that's where your hopes are, you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the motive for our confidence, no matter how difficult the trials of this life might become. If you cultivate that heavenly perspective, it won't matter to you whether you receive praise or recognition from other people. And the church today needs nothing more than it needs that attitude. That we don't care what people think. We're serving the Lord, and in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Let me close with a quotation from Spurgeon. I always feel bad if I leave him out. (laughs) He said this, Our work of faith is not in vain because we shall rise again. If what we do for God were to have its only reward on earth, that would be a poor prospect. Strike out the hope of the hereafter and the Christian's reward would be gone. But beloved, we shall rise again. Our work is ended when our eye is closed in death, but our life is not ended with our work. We shall preach no more. We shall no more teach the little children. We shall no more talk with the wayfarer about the Savior, but we will enjoy better things than these, for we shall sit upon our Savior's throne even as he sits upon his Father's throne. And our heads will have crowns to deck them. Our hands will wave the palm of victory. We'll put on the white robe, the victor's apparel. We'll stand around the throne in triumph and we will behold and share in the glories of the Son of God. Spurgeon said, O brethren, shrink not because the crown is just within your reach. Let's pray. Father, give us courageous, steadfast hearts of true faith. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead in order to give us the greatest proof and the best assurance that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Seal and magnify our faith and make us diligent. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and give us a will to work for Christ in the days that remain for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.